0: Welcome friends, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast and radio show of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network, and if you're not listening on the radio, you're listening to a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, on that note, at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Gracie Christie, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined, um, I'm actually in Miami, which was not demolished by Hurricane Dorian, unlike the poor Bahamas, and uh, I'm joined in our Washington studio by my
1: colleague, Ashley McGuire. Hello, Ashley. Hey, Gracie. It's great to be with you. It's um, good to see you. I'm glad you did not get demolished by the hurricane.
0: I know. I but. wish it'd been us instead of the Bahamas. Yeah. However, it's very sad. We think about the Bahamas a lot here because we can almost see them, and we often go there. But anyway, uh, going on to sweeter topics, we are very excited to have a very important guest with us today, someone that both Ashley and I look up to as a leading intellectual light. Many people do. Her name is Mary Eberstadt, and she's a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C., she is a writer who writes a lot about religious freedom, sexuality, and the family. She's, the, um, she's appeared all over the place, Time, Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post. She's written amazing books, some of them my top favorites, like How the West Really Lost God, uh, It's Dangerous to Believe. That's a really wonderful one. My personal favorite, The Loser Letters, a comic tale of life, death, and atheism. That happens to be my personal favorite. Until now, until her new book called... Well, we'll let her tell us about her book. Welcome to our show, Mary Eberstadt.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So we are, we invited uh, Mary to come and talk to us about a really important new book that she has recently published called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. Now, I don't know about my listeners, but I know that Ashley and I both spend a lot of time thinking about identity politics. And how we got to this place, which is a little crazy. Uh, All of us, most people feel this way, know that things have accelerated and we're living in a landscape we barely recognize. Um, And Mary Eberstadt has been so kind as to
1: explain it to us in this fabulous new book. So, Mary, um, you know, as Gracie was saying, it really feels like identity politics has reached a fever pitch um, and sort of taints every aspect of life, whether it's political or educational Um, Every decision seems to have to be made in the context of identity politics. Um, And I think people are increasingly sort of afraid and confused (laughs) that they'll say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and that it might even get them sideways with the law. Um, And a lot of us are wondering, you know, how it is that we got here. And I, um, you know, we've read your book and it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it to all of our readers. It's actually not a very long book. um, So if you want sort of a a treatise on on explaining how it is that we got here. I can't recommend it more. Um, but help us to understand a little bit. You you know you have a line in your book where you say say that the question "Who am I?" is the preeminent psychic howl of our time. What do you mean by that? And and and, and walk us through your book a little bit.
2: Well, so Ashley, as you mentioned, we're all familiar with how divisive politics has become, and how everyone. It seems it's siloed into a group based on race, based on gender, based on political sentiments like feminism. And we're accustomed to certain ways of dealing with this. Many people who are not part of such politics just dismiss them. Uh, Many feel that it's because of coddled students on campus or so-called snowflakes uh, that we're having these kind of issues. But I'm doing a real different take with this book. My argument is that identity politics is actually expressing something very deep about our time, which is that the basic building blocks of identity, the family, religious faith, the things that have allowed people in earlier times to answer that question, who am I, are now so attenuated for many people that they can't find themselves in those ways. And the result is this increasingly impassioned, frantic flight to collective identities that, in effect, substitute for the old identities of family and religious faith.
0: You know what really worked for me, uh, uh, what really caught my attention when I started reading the book, Mary, is that you started out by talking about habitats. Habitats and animal habitats and talking about human beings as animals with certain habitats. Could you explain that to us?
2: Yes, thank you, Gracie. I put some references to animal literature in the book because I think they're very relevant in describing how disconnected we are from one another. Human beings are social animals and I think there's a great irony before us which is that science has documented more and more how intensely social animals are and in particular how familial so I open the book with the example of the lone wolf, because it turns out that there's no such thing <laughs> as a lone wolf. Wolves actually exist in tightly knit families, um, Ozzie and Harriet style, if you want to say, with a mother, father, siblings, etc. And it turns out wolves are not alone. Across the animal kingdom, this is how animals organize themselves. They may not mate for life in all cases, but they organize themselves in these kinship structures. Now, why is that important? It's important because studying animals shows that this is how they learn to be the animals they are. And when you isolate them from one another, and when you isolate them from their families, they develop all kinds of problems. Autistic behavior, repetitive, self-destructive tendencies, and other things that I get into a little bit in the book. Now we can see this very clearly when we're talking about other species and this is one reason for instance that elephants are no longer going to be found in circuses and why just the other week there was an international ban on taking baby elephants away from their families in Mm -hmm. Africa. We can see very clearly how destructive it is for all other creatures not to exist in family and extended family but we don't see it in ourselves. And that's a great paradox, I think, because since the 1960s, there have been a number of trends, as we all know, that have served to undermine and weaken human families, abortion, fatherlessness, uh, and the rest of the extended litany. What we're not seeing and what I'm trying to bring attention to in this book is the psychic distress, the collective Mm -hmm. psychic distress that this has caused by leaving so many people without a firm sense of who they are in the familial order, which again is why they're turning with desperation to these collective political entities or what we refer to as identity politics to fill that very necessary vacuum.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> when, in the different examples you gave of the animals, I found the elephants to be the most interesting and you had uh, quoted a Nobel Prize winning Um, author. And his quote was, destroying the family life of highly social, intelligent animals leads inevitably to misery among individual survivors and pathological misbehavior among the group. And then you go on to say, he's talking about elephants, but you read that and you think that's a perfect (laughs) description of what happens to humans. (laughs) Um, And so I, I did really find it interesting the way you wove in um, nature, and it reminded me actually of um, Pope Francis, who's talked a lot about this idea of an integrated ecology. That um, nature, you know, uh, our relationship to nature um, is we don't exist sort of separate from each other, and there's, you know, a lot of mirrored behavior to be seen. Um, another thing that you talk a lot about in the book is this idea of the two Americas or the new wealth. And you talk about how um, familial wealth or, you know, familial poverty is really sort of the um, the new elitism. Talk a little bit more about that and what you mean by that.
2: Thanks, Ashley. Well, that comes out of decades now of sociology. And the example I give is the great the late great social scientist James Q. Wilson who documented this better than any other single person. And the gist of what he was able to show is that family structure is more important to outcomes for children and adolescents than any other fact. Mm -hmm. Now let that sink in because that is actually remarkable. Remember this is a secular social scientist. And it's
0: Um, it's counter to what we generally hear.
2: Yes, because what we generally hear is that, no, it's about race. Wrong. Wilson proved that it wasn't. How you grow up in a family has more to do with how you live your life later than any other variable. It is more important than wealth, for example. So if it's not wealth and it's not race and it is family structure, what can we learn from that? Well, this is a hard lesson for people because so many of us, and I count myself in this, are of course affected by the fallout of the sexual revolution in all kinds of ways. And for anybody under 70, um, that world after the revolution is the only world that people know. So I'm not making this argument to try and take people back to the 1950s or put the genie back in the bottle or whatever. (laughs) I'm making this argument because I think if only as a humanitarian matter, it's important that we recognize how much distress is out there because of these ways in which we're living that are inimical to our nature as social animals. And this distress also registers in social science and elsewhere. For example, the rising problems with the rising psychiatric problems among young people, especially but not only on campuses. There has been a serious upswing in diagnoses of anxiety, depression.
1: That's um, so true.
2: uh, OCD-like behavior. And, you know, the United States is not materially worse off than it was 50 years ago. So you can't say it's because we're impoverished that these things are happening. No, the reason these things are happening, again, is that People are not surrounded by enough people who have their backs. In other words, like family and extended family, to learn in a healthy way how to join the wider community. They're coming from a very broken place, and I think it's really important to give voice to that brokenness.
0: Mary, when I was I I'm as I grew up uh, here in the United States, I I I kept your book explained something to me because. I'm a person, my background is one of being a minority, a second, English as a second language. Uh, I grew up in the sort of the backwash of, rev- of revolution and exile and lots and poverty. We were very poor. Um, everything was against us. All those material things that people say matter the most were against us. But I had the family culture. My family had that solid, um, we knew, I knew exactly who I was. I didn't know always where I was going to be physically, but I knew who I was. And I see myself trying to, I could never understand the idea that being Hispanic or being a minority or not having the language could in any way really impact who my my ultimate success in life. And now your book explains it to me because it doesn't impact your success in life overall. If you have the right family culture, if your habitat has not been destroyed and you're growing up with the, the healthy inputs that every human animal needs.
2: Well, Gracie, your story really goes to the heart of the argument of the book. My question is, why are so many people asking, who am I? That's a remarkable fact about our civilization at this point in time, is that people are asking that question via identity politics. And here is where the churches and the decline in the churches comes in as well, because there are two ways of answering that question, traditionally speaking. Who am I? I'm a mother, I'm a cousin, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt. In other words, we answer this via our relations if we're fortunate enough to have them. The other way of answering it, of course, is the way that Christians and other believers are taught to answer the question. Who am I? I'm a child of God, right? Mm -hmm. That's my identity. That's the most important thing about me. Not my sex, not my skin color not any other characteristics. No, it is my place in the created order as a child of God. That's the most important thing. Well, what we have to understand is that now these two kinds of answers are out of reach for a lot of people. And the result, I think, is a a terrified flight to some place, almost any place, where they can answer those questions for themselves by clinging to a group that professes to answer them.
0: So the rupture, to rephrase, so the rupture of the human family and the lack of religious community um, does makes it so that people can't answer the question, the burning question that orients you to everything, right? Who am I? And so what are, what are people are turning? What are people turning to? Their erotic leanings. And their- yeah, that's
2: one way of answering the question, Who am I? Well, it's whatever was you know my latest erotic idea. Uh, who am I? Well, this group, uh, this political group, say if the feminist political group looks like a place where I could find protection. That's another way of answering the question. And the point is that these kinds of answers are substitutes and poor substitutes for mm-hmm. more elemental ways of defining ourselves. And they're causing a lot of distress. I can't emphasize enough that the generations most affected by the sexual revolution, are the younger generations, and those are the generations in which we are seeing this rise in psychiatric trouble, behavioral trouble, et cetera.
1: It really does seem like um, that is only getting worse. And, you know, you see these studies, like the study that found that women are um, more unhappy today than they've ever been in recorded history. And then you look at the sort of um, the, this, the contagions almost that are plaguing um, young people suicide, and you know you have a whole chapter on on sort of gender identity, and that's the thing that has really your book helped me to understand. Even even though I've written a book about this, <laughs> the question I always had in the back of my mind is why is this taking why off, no? and why is why it no? why does it feel like it's accelerating? And I, I read this anonymous um, parents blog in D.C. It's called D.C. Urban Moms and Dads, and it's a fascinating window into the mindset of the sort of elites who run this sit, this country. And it's truly startling to see how many of these parents post about their child um, questioning their, their sexual identity. Um, and it seems like, you know, your point about the fact that children are so unmoored that they're sort of—I mean—they're—they're they're questioning even that, and that it's, there's almost something to claiming a different identity that makes them feel like they have some sort of agency in in their lives when everything else doesn't seem to be there. Um, but anyway. Well, it,
0: it puts them in a sympathetic group, right? Mm-hmm. That they that those people have their back. They they have family. They found they find their spot.
2: Yes, they found their figurative family, but they can't get the same things from it that the family provides for people. And to get back to the animals quickly, uh, in a series of horrible experiments on rhesus monkeys, testing what isolation would do to monkeys, one thing that was found was that monkeys that are isolated from other monkeys don't know how to be monkeys. The monkey mothers didn't know how to mother because they hadn't been exposed to mothering. That's highly suggestive evidence that you need others of your kind to learn from in order to be a healthy, integrated person. And again, collectively, our society is now a place where there is so much isolation on account of the sexual revolution that a lot of people um, don't have that way of learning from one another anymore, and this is something new in human history.
0: You mention you know, one thing that the book made very real for me was the the pain that people are experiencing, the, the terrible sense of loss and dislocation. Because obvious, maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but obviously to me, as a person who's, um, you know, very firmly ensconced in sort of a traditional mindset of male and female, I never sit in the front seat if there's a man in the car, for instance. You know, but of course, I'm Hispanic, so <laughs> we do that kind of thing. Uh, but if uh, I don't... Un- I. I want to look at the people who, who react differently, who are acting differently with sympathy. And your book does this for me. It tells me, it explains to me what a broken, broken thing the, that they're experiencing deep inside for them and that this is a result of that brokenness. It's
2: important to recognize the amount of pain out there. When you see students stamping around on campuses with, you know, their mouths duct taped, when you see the demonstrators at Jordan Peterson's talks, these people are not happy. That's the first thing we need to understand. So we should not ever dismiss these expressions. We shouldn't dismiss identity politics. We need to understand it and understand the the pain from which it's coming.
0: Well, your book certainly does that for me, and I know for everyone who will read it. No, we have to take a very short break because we're on radio time, but we will be right back talking to the writer, Mary Everstadt, about her book, Primal Screams. Welcome back, friends. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined today by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire, and this is Conversations with Consequences, our radio show and podcast. We are very happy and very privileged to have Mary Eberstadt with us, uh, a very important writer and American intellectual who just published her latest book called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. So, we'll continue with Mary. And um, I wanted, I asked, I want to ask Mary if we could talk about. There's a couple of chapters right in the middle of the book that I found absolutely fascinating. And one of them is Feminism as Survival Strategy. I really had never considered feminism this way.
2: Well, thanks, Gracie. So, I wrote that chapter because I think that feminism is an example of a phenomenon that is not well understood. It's the oldest of the identities in identity politics. Uh, And so I take a close look at it because I think something very different is going on there than people commonly realize. So Ashley and I are in Washington, D.C. And you might remember that there were demonstrations in Washington uh, at the inauguration of President Trump. And people were wearing pink hats. And the demonstrations were by feminists. So this gives us a snapshot of current feminism. The demonstrations were very angry. There was a lot of profanity associated uh, with it, and that's pretty much what feminism has come to. It's a kind of swaggering um, ideology, dismissive of men in many cases, whose central principle is the need for abortion, um, which is, you know, Not the kind of thing you usually associate with the, with the female sex, but it, we do now. Um, so my question is, why is this happening? Why is it like this? In a time when women are overrepresented in universities, for example, when they have opportunities they've never had before, when they're achieving all over the paid marketplace, what is behind this kind of angry, bellicose feminism? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is that The sexual revolution has made it harder to get married, made it harder to have a family, which are two things that most women still say they want. Uh, The sexual revolution has reduced numerically the number of men in women's lives. Women have fewer brothers, fewer male cousins, often don't have fathers in the home. And meanwhile, the availability of contraception means that um, men are much less likely to settle down and get married because Why should they when it's a player's market out there? So the bottom line is that I think this angry, aggressive feminism is also coming from a place of hurt and it's coming from a place where women are having more trouble finding men, where they're furious at men for being unreliable and where, because of the lack of male companionship, feminism takes on these aggressive male characteristics as a kind of self-protection, as a kind of protective coloration to get back to the habitat idea. And that's the argument.
1: Well, and the irony is, as the Me Too movement shows, which you also discuss in a chapter is that it's, it's not been a very good survival tactic because um, what's happened is it's just wrought more um, pain and aggression on women. You know, you mentioned the Women's March, and one thing that I really remember standing out um, about it was the sort of intra-Women's March squabble about whether or not um, the use of the hat that depicted the female genitalia was um, exclusive of transgenders. And you know that was sort of like a canary important question. <laughs> well, it was a canary in the coal mine in terms of where the things were going. Because here we are now, just two, three years later, and it seems um, like there's a real struggle within feminism. Uh, there's two identity politics. Uh, types of identity politics are really starting to clash. And so I'm I'm curious what you think is the future of feminism when it's now you can't even be a feminist and say that biological men can't compete on women's sports when just a few decades ago women's sports was the frontier, was one of the frontiers for feminism.
2: Well, I predict that there will be a growing feminist backlash to the phenomenon of men, biological men, Um, more and more encroaching on uh, and sometimes um, uh, invading (laughs) female spaces. So I think feminism is not going to be able to square that circle uh, with the gender people. But what's really interesting to me, Ashley, about what you just described, that whole big public fight before the Women's March, is that that is a classic example of something that, again, you find in animal behavior. That fight is what's called a dominance fight. It was an attempt to create a hierarchy and see who would be the ruler of it. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's so interesting is that in the animal world, as theorists quoted in the book point out, dominance struggles are what happens when animals are living apart from their families. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Dominance struggles happen in what's called a forced pack, that is a group of animals not related to each other. Why? Because when they're living in families, the hierarchy is established and they don't have mm-hmm. to have a dominance fight because they know who the winner is. Um, one more example from animals and then I'll stop about animals, but it's so relevant. <laughs> I love the
0: animals. It's That's a wonderful so, way to think about it.
2: So relevant here. Uh, there were um, young elephants again separated from their families who were acting up really rampaging in a wild game park in africa and they were literally raping rhinoceroses and destroying lots of stuff Ah. they had so forgotten their elephant nest because they weren't living in elephant community but somebody figured out how to stop this they imported an older bull elephant in effect a father figure And the younger male elephants just cut it out immediately. Mm -hmm. Again, another highly suggestive example that we are living in a very unnatural way. I mean, Mm -hmm. unnatural for the creatures that we are.
1: You know, it's funny. The story you what you just described is the story of Babar. The elephant movie, um, the French cartoon, which I just watched with my kids. That's exactly what happens. They bring back the king and the elephants fall into this state of disarray and they bring back the king and it restores the order. I'm like, why does this story sound familiar?
0: That's like when you bring in a man to to work on the, the parent, like the PTA, the, a woman's group, you always need at least one man to come and put us all in order.
2: <laughs> oh boy, oh I can just see, I can see the word patriarchy flashing <laughs> all over as listeners hear this, but...
0: You know, but, but it works like a charm. A little testosterone in the group works like a charm. It calms everybody down. But you know, Mary, you had the same. This chapter had the same effect on me as I described before. It filled me with pity and understanding of the angry feminist because the anger is coming from a place of of loneliness and vulnerability. They really have imagine to to never to really never count on the fact that one man will will take care of you and in in a beautiful way. I don't. That sounds again patriarchal, but that a man will will be looking to your good for your whole life. It's it's a terrible thing to have to live without, the idea that that can't even exist. Well, yes, and it's not as if they don't
2: devise culprits, right? Identity politics is full of culprits, supposedly. So the culprit is the patriarchy, or the culprit is the gender binary, right? Or Or women Racism or, (laughs) you know, some other abstraction. Now, I'm not denying that things like white racism exist, but white racism cannot possibly explain all of these different kinds of struggles over identity. So we need to get away from abstractions and talk about the very real ground from which these kind of uh, anxieties are springing, and it's not the patriarchy.
0: My daughter in college. I'm sorry, Ashley. You want to go ahead? No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, my daughter in college. I have a a, gar, a girl who graduated a year ago from college, and she did. She describes a lot of anxiety on campus, on the on the side on the on the side of women of younger of young women, and you explain in your chapter beautifully, because men have no barriers. Men have no. There's no standards that men have to follow anymore. So all you it, every sec, every romantic encounter, what they call romantic encounter. It could be with a predator, because that line is blurred, as you say.
2: Well, yes, and this gets us back to Me Too as well. So the problem is that with the diminution of Christianity and the diminution of the family, people don't know what the playbook is anymore. And so Mm -hmm. there are all of these artificial attempts to recreate it, say, by these codes on campus that are all about consent, right? And the problem is that these playbooks are... Core guides, um, I think this also explains the phenomenon of political correctness, why everybody's now tiptoeing around the workplace and tiptoeing around um, the school corridors, just afraid to say anything at all that might run afoul of any, <clears throat> anybody's opinion. Well, I think this, too, has to be understood as an attempt to put some kind of brakes on behavior, especially male behavior. Uh, It isn't working very well, Mm -hmm. as we see in the example of Me Too. Remember, the Me Too phenomenon was emanating from the most progressive, uh, enlightened uh, precincts, Hollywood and the media. That's right. The problem there wasn't that these women weren't educated. The problem wasn't that they were poor in most cases. The problem was that they hadn't been socialized to understand Don't go to your boss's hotel room in the Mm -hmm. middle of the night. And, you know, just very basic lessons that in a time of more robust families, they would have understood because they would have been taught such things before they ever left for the paid marketplace.
0: Because their fathers would have said, like my husband says to every girl, all the little girls in my house, he says, men are dogs. (laughs) That's hard. But that's the point, right? You have to be careful. There's
2: there's a really um, pertinent country and western song that I mentioned in the book called cleaning out my gun and it's all about this it's Mm, a father saying to his (laughs) uh the the boy who comes to pick up his daughter for a date well you guys go off and have a good time I'm just going to sit here cleaning out my gun and you know there's (laughs) that's my husband (laughs) the implied force there is part of what used to keep the social order from chaos and I don't mean that people should you know Uh, take anything literally. But as with the example of the older elephants uh, acting as a calming force on the younger elephants, I think the same is true here. And without those kind of old strictures or traditional strictures, people are left having to reinvent the wheel on all this stuff. And they're not doing a very good job of it, or we wouldn't have had Me Too in the first place.
1: One of the things you... Talk about in the book, which I thought was fascinating, was this idea of evolutionary winners, and that just really struck a chord with me because, it, you know, it's similar to an argument that Charles Murray has made and others that you know, people who are coming from these strong families are, um, you know, they're doing much better. People who are in stable marriages, that you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, that's sort of the new wealth, the new elite, are the people um, who find themselves, um, fortunate enough to, you know, be in these sort of stable nurturing environments. Um, and you know, it's particularly struck me because in a sense, I feel like I am an evolutionary winner in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have not listened to the voices in society, got married when I was 25, And now I'm in my mid-30s, and I've been married almost a decade, and I have three children. And, you know, that's sort of the new wealth, the sort of that happiness and stability that so many um, millennials and even Gen Xers are, are searching for. But, you know, you don't really in your book offer any sort of solution, but how can we help more people to evolutionarily survive this sort of catastrophic fallout that we're in?
2: Well, Ashley, I really meant it when I said I, I wrote this book as a humanitarian effort. And my hope is that if we just keep trying to hold a mirror up to society as it mm-hmm. is, you know, not as we're told that it is by people in identity politics or other people with political agendas, but just as it is, that over time it's going to have the effect of making people think. And I think right now is a very uh, apposite moment that way because there is a generalized sense out there that there's something very wrong with society right
0: we have mm-hmm. everyone feels that uh,
2: you know declining life expectancy for the first time in American history uh, we've had a rise in deaths of despair and our political conversation um, is is just terrible it's so divisive um, so this might be a good moment to introduce the idea of hey you know there's something going on here that isn't about one person there's been a system-wide disturbance in the way that we live and it's affecting all of us and by the way i want to add this isn't like a one-to-one correspondence thing we're social creatures we pick up on social cues so you might be uh, in a robust family without any of these issues But you and your kids and everyone else around you is going to be affected by the collective environment because that's just how we are. It's like when a factory pours toxic stuff into a lake, say, and some of the fish are affected and some are not, and there's no way of knowing who's at risk. Uh, That's where we are, I think, in all of this. So we can't just retreat to the wilderness and say, well, I'll have my family and my five friends who have their families because we live in this collective environment that we can't really get away from, which is why we have to fix it. Even if we think that we're not part of it, we are.
0: Mary, this reminds me of something you you talked about in your book also, which uh, I have, for instance, I have uh, friends who, who have intact families and strong traditions and and churchgoers and, and, and a real religious uh, even pious people, but their boys aren't growing up. Their, their boys, their young men, aren't growing up. And you talk about this in, in your chapter on androgyny. And and how even in a... Well, you were saying even in a, if your family is okay, they're picking this up from the culture.
2: Yeah, they're picking it up from the culture. And I think one obvious reason that it's happening is that there are fewer boys who have male role models who have fathers in the house. Look, it's that simple. I mean... If you grow up, uh, the son of a single mom, she might be the most heroic person on earth. I have no doubt. I'm sure that single moms are. Um, My mom was single for quite a while, so I know this to be true. But, you know, not to be able to emulate a man is to be thrown back on the idea of, okay, maybe, maybe I should gravitate a little more this way. And I think this is where the new androgyny is coming from. It's coming from boys not getting signals about how to be masculine, or worse, getting signals that masculinity is, quote, toxic. What are they left with except the idea that maybe it would be better to lean in a little more, you know, toward the female side of things? And uh, as you know from that chapter, I think there's evidence for that claim.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about the other side? Tell us about how women are leaning into masculinity, because I found that very interesting and I'm watching it happen all around me and even young girls.
2: Well, again, this starts in the 1960s, and it starts with unisex clothing. Uh, Just remember how ubiquitous blue jeans were, right? And that was supposed to be something that, you know, was just perfect for either sex, even though the sexes are different. Um, I walk through some of this evidence because I find it so interesting about fashion and how more and more the unisex look became popular. Uh, Again, in the case of women, I think it's about adapting to a world in which men are less reliable and less available and in a world like that how does one protect oneself well by becoming a little more like a man and these are the social cues that we're getting you know the just that boys are getting to be more feminine that girls are getting to be more masculine it doesn't mean those are the only cues we're getting, but if you look around society, you can see this androgyny at work, as Ashley has pointed out in her book Sex Scandal, which is the best <laughs> single book on this subject. And it is. there is, it is something that's transforming civilization.
1: One final question I have, Mary, is uh, that I was kind of left thinking about. You know, if you think about evolution and sort of generally, I mean, not... I don't think, you know, Hegelianism is true. It's not like we're arching towards progress. Um, There's a lot of things about modernity that are very troubling. But generally, you know, humans and nature have evolved in a direction that better helps us to adapt to our society and survive better. So why are we suddenly, you know, you talk about this as like a self-inflicted wound. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Because there's great resistance
2: to understanding that we are hurting ourselves. And as with the example of tobacco, which I often think of analogously, you know, for a long time there was great resistance to understanding that that could be a harmful substance. It took a lot of work and a lot of research and empirical evidence to change people's minds about about smoking all over the place. But over time it did work. And so Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that the empirical record can have that transformative effect um, by, again, holding a mirror up to the way we live now and saying, look, where is this really coming from?
0: And I hope, Mary Everstadt, that your book, Primal Screams, will be the the, the thing that uh, ignites that, that return because truly something powerful is happening to humanity. And it's wonderful that in your book you dissect it for us and you, as you say, hold up a mirror to, to our culture so that we can understand it. So thank you, Mary, for joining us today and Conversations with Consequences.
2: Thank you, Gracie, and thank you, Ashley.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And this week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry will give us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry, and do look up his daily homily, written and audio, on his website catholicpreaching.com.
3: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. It's one of the most moving and powerful conversations of all time, in which Jesus gives us three parables of his mercy, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, often called the parable of the prodigal son. We learn a few things first about God's great joy in extending his mercy to us. The two parables of finding the lost sheep and the lost coin Finish with Jesus saying, Heaven rejoices more for one repentant sinner than for 99 who never needed to repent. It's an extraordinary lesson. I like to think that we know how much the Blessed Virgin Mary, who never sinned, pleased God by her constant lifetime of yeses. But Jesus, her Son, the truth who can't deceive us, tells us that heaven rejoiced more for one repentant sinner than for 99 who never needed to repent. In other words, heaven rejoices almost a hundred times more when we come back to him to receive his mercy than even the Blessed Virgin Mary pleased him, and we know how infinitely she pleased him. We should take this seriously and have it flavor our entire approach to the sacrament of his merciful love, and that brings us to the parable of the prodigal son. In it, we see two sons, and we see the essence of sin and the essence of forgiveness, First, the essence of sin shown to us first in that younger son who treats his father as if he's dead. Give me now, Dad, the inheritance that will come to me when you finally croak. I can't wait. We sometimes think that the sin might have been squandering the money in a life of debauchery, but it had happened before. He didn't have room for the father. His heart was dead to his dad. He wasn't open to the father's love. But eventually he came to a census when he hit rock bottom and he came back He came back because he had begun to get a glimpse of the father's generosity. He said, even the hired hands of my father's house have more than enough to eat. Hired hands weren't slaves. They were day laborers. The slaves needed to be fed by the master. The hired hands were to fend for themselves. But the father even fed the hired hands and gave them more than enough to eat. So a son was coming back to ask to be treated just like a day laborer. But the father wasn't going to allow that. We see the generosity of the father's mercy. He runs out to meet his son, embraces him, calls for the finest garment to be thrown around him. Remember, he was in a pigsty before he came. He would have been filthy. The father was throwing away his greatest garment, but it didn't matter because he loved the son. He put a signet ring around his finger so that he could sign checks in the ancient world. He put sandals on his feet so that he could... Walk about wherever he pleased. Slaves never had sandals. He killed the fatted calf because that was the greatest celebration of all. His son was dead and has come back to life. We'll return to that in a second. The third lesson is about the older son. He refused to come in for the celebration because he didn't understand the father and his merciful love either. He said, all these years I have served you and never once did I disobey your orders, dad. should have substituted master instead of father there. He didn't really relate to his father according to the father's love. He didn't relate to his brother either. He said, when this son of yours returns, couldn't even call him by his name. And we don't know how that turned out because the parable was told for the scribes and the Pharisees who, before Jesus' stories, were complaining that he was eating with sinners and welcoming them. Did they enter into the feast? Did they rejoice at the return of sinners? brings for us a few lessons. The first is, how do we relate to God? Do we relate to him according to his love? Do we respond to him with love, or just with dutiful fear? Is he dead to us because we're in sin, or is he alive? Second, do we come to our sinners and come to receive his mercy, recognizing just how much joy it brings him? Third, do we rejoice when others come back, when they convert and revert? Do we celebrate their return, by learning to forgive together with God's forgiveness. to even go out to try to bring God greater joy and our brothers greater happiness by having them reconciled? These are some of the things that Jesus wants to talk to us about this Sunday, one of the most consequential conversations you'll ever have. May we show up with ears and may we learn how to live these great truths that he teaches us out of his mercy.
0: Thank you so much, Father Landry, for our weekly treat. Unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye to all our listeners. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, which is a service of the Catholic Association. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast of our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. Tell all your friends about us. And or join us next week on our radio show, 11 a.m. on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Goodbye, friends.